0: I'm so happy today because I've got my good friend Andrew Wilson who's going to come and share with us. And um, Andrew was such a key part of our leadership team here, uh, an elder with Ollie and I and others over the years. We've just been so grateful to him. It's been wonderful to have the Wilson family as part of our church family here over the years. And as most of you, many of you will know, Andrew is on the leadership team in King's Church london in catford and so we don't always see him here it's always a joy to have him with us and today especially a joy because he's going to share the word of god with us can you put your hands together and welcome him thank him so grateful to god for him um so let's open our bibles before the mic gets just just, just a second away Uh, acts chapter 22 we're going to be in acts chapter 22 and 23 um we have been in a series, or you have been in a series, and I feel like I've been joining in at times, uh, from the Book of Acts since last May. And so, for the, during the time we've been in this series, uh, we've had five education secretaries, Four chancellors, three prime ministers, and two monarchs. So, this has been a meaty series, right? I just thought we'd enjoy that little reference. To be fair, a lot of that happened last summer, but it's kind of fun to reflect on how long the book of Acts has taken us. And uh, we're in Acts chapter 22, and I think I'm right in saying that the pace is going to pick up in these next three or four weeks. So, we will probably be finishing the book of Acts in about four or five weeks' time. But Acts is a strange book to read through in a way because. It's really action-packed for about 20 chapters. Lots of churches being planted, miracles, the Holy Spirit breaking out in power, doing lots of amazing things. And then in the last seven or eight chapters, the healings and the prison breaks and the drama and riots all sort of stops. And it becomes a very kind of convoluted trial story. So if you've ever read through the book of Acts, which many of us have, you find about 20 chapters of bang, 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 God. And then seven or eight chapters of, ooh, then Paul gets moved from place to place to place to place with all these sort of Monty Python sounding characters sending letters to each other and saying, ah, Publius Festus, ah, I am also called Festus, and who are you Felix, no one knows. It's that kind of weird dynamic. So what we're going to do is try and make some sense of why Act does that and why it spends so long on it and what this bit of the book is meant to do to show So If you don't know the book of Acts, we will hopefully help you find your feet in it as well. But what's going to happen in these next few chapters is that Paul is just in the passage we read from last week, or just after it, uh, Paul has basically been arrested because he's been accused of taking Gentiles into the temple. Which he hasn't, but that's what they think he's done, so they arrest him. And then in these two chapters, he's going to make a defense. And he's going to present the reason why he doesn't think he should be prosecuted or whatever. And it's a slightly strange, that for the rest of the book of Acts, it was now be a trial story. And to understand why that's happening, why, the, why this story takes place the way it does, We have to understand why Luke, who wrote this, is writing the book at all. Because the other gospel, you know, four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the other three didn't write a sequel. So why did Luke write a sequel? What's he trying to do? So Matthew writes Matthew's gospel, Jesus is risen happily, everybody goes home. Luke doesn't. Luke goes, no, Jesus is risen happily, yes, but now I need to tell you what happens next. And why does Luke do that? And the reason is, I think, that Luke is writing this book, Acts as a whole, to show the Roman world, and particularly his Roman patron, this guy Theophilus he's writing to, he's trying to say Christians are innocent of the charges that the Romans keep throwing at them. That's a huge part of why he's written the book. And a lot of the book of Acts is attempting to effectively get Christians off the hook for the things that the Romans and the Jews are accusing them of doing. And lots of the stories, it makes sense of some things in Acts, which you've probably seen as you've gone through the book. Do so you think, why, does, why are there so many of these very long speeches? Why is Stephen's speech so long? Why is Gamaliel, do you remember the, the Pharisee, this is probably back in the summer we would have read about Gamaliel, saying, listen, you can't try and stop this movement because if it's not God, it'll fizzle out. And if it is God, you won't be able to stop it anyway, so you might as well just let them get on with it. And Luke tells us lots of things like that over and over again in this book. To say, guys, trying to stop Christianity isn't going to work. The Roman world should not try and oppress these people. We are innocent of these charges. And that's, I think, what Luke is trying to do. And he's actually, he does it in his gospel as well. Do you read Luke's gospel? When Jesus dies in Matthew, Jesus, uh, the centurion says, this man was the son of God. When Jesus dies in Luke, the centurion says, this man was innocent. Now you said both, right? But Luke picks up on the word innocent because he's trying to say, do you see, Jesus is innocent. Paul, in all of these trials he gets through, everyone tries him. Everyone yells at him, they beat him, they hit him, they throw rocks at him, they put him on trial, they take him to Caesar, he gets shipwrecked, they put him again, but he's always innocent. And they they can't make the mud stick because the Christians are actually doing what the living God has called them to do and you must stop trying to prosecute them. That's what Luke's trying to do in writing this book. And if you read Acts with that in mind, you make sense of some passages that otherwise you think, this is just a bit random. Why on earth is this happening? And so this is really the passage we're going to read now is at the heart of the reason for the book. So Paul's just been falsely accused and arrested and now he's making his defence. And what he's going to do is give us a a masterclass in what Christians call apologetics, which means it's from the the word apologia, which means to make a defence. It's actually the word that appears in the first verse of the chapter. Paul made his defence, his apologia. His, he gave an apologetic for Christianity. And if you are a Christian in the 21st century or any century, people are going to attack you. Right? They might not throw stones in your head and they might not punch you in the face like happens to Paul, but they will attack what you believe and they'll probably attack you at times. And you need to know how to defend that faith without fighting back. How do you do... You can, well, I mean physically. How do you defend Christianity? Uh, just... Um, This last week, on Wednesday, I had my friend Ed Shaw uh, come to speak at our church in London. He's a, a very courageous guy because he speaks a lot about biblical sexuality and he's an Anglican vicar. And the Anglican Church, as you probably know, is having a massive meltdown about this subject of about sexuality at the moment. And he is a, a same-sex attracted guy or some would say a gay, Christ, celibate gay Christian. And he does a lot of that kind of thing. He was with us on Wednesday and I just thought I'd show you these. This is, in the last seven or ten days, these are letters that have been written about him in the church times. Sir, Ed Shaw continues to push the line that he's a Christian who attempts to live according to the Bible and those who disagree with his interpretation are guilty of a departure from apostolic teaching. Which, by the way, they are. But anyway, the letter goes on. It goes on to these um, causes is a safeguarding risk. Um, it causes people lifelong mental health problems. He, in the, elsewhere in the letter, it calls him bigoted. It says it's a scapegoating. And this is what people do. They say you're a safeguarding risk for saying what you're saying for teaching the Bible. That's the one example I just saw this week. In fact, that's on the right. That's a letter from Penny Mordant. Who's a name many would know. Politically, writing again, you must wait, you, bishops, you must take this decision. I'm using my political influence to change. So it happens all the time. And this is just us on sex, but on any issue, you are going to find yourself being challenged or sometimes quite viciously attacked, I think, in public spaces, if you're not careful, for what you believe. And Paul, in this passage, is going to give us a masterclass in how do you defend yourself? What kinds of things do you need to do when your faith is under attack? And so if you want a title for this message, I'm going to call it A Short Course in Christian Apologetics. That's what Paul is going to give us without really meaning So let's start reading chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. Brothers and fathers, hear the defence, that's that word, apologia, apologetic, hear the defence that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew, was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness." From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Just pause there for a moment. Effective apologetics, answering tricky questions about the faith when people accuse you of things or are giving a public defense of it, like Paul's doing here, means you need to understand your audience. That's the first thing you have to do. You have to understand who are these people and why are they so angry. If they are angry with me, if they're attacking my faith why what is it they believe what are their motivations Their thinking about this subject that means they're angry with me who's challenging me why what do they currently believe what common ground might we already share which might enable me to talk to them about it and Paul does that brilliantly here so notice they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew language so the first thing he does is he goes well you could are you going to talk in Latin or in Greek or in Aramaic or Hebrew now you and I might not have that choice most people we speak to are probably going to already speak English. But in Paul's case, he goes, I'm going to speak to these people because they're Jews in Jerusalem, not in Greek, which is the main language that a lot of the New Testament people use. I'm going to speak in Hebrew because I want to show them I'm one of you. Right? We share our linguistic heritage. He then says, I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, which is modern-day Turkey. So I was born somewhere else, but I was brought up in this city. In other words, this is my hometown really I'm a stranger from out of town but I came and I settled here and I know it well and I want you to know that we've got common ground you and me we're in the same from the same kind of city background he says being zealous for God I was zealous for God as all of you are to this day he's commending them for their zeal now this is people who were about to as we'll see in a couple of chapters time well they're gonna arrest him they're gonna beat him up they're gonna try and get him killed and eventually he will be killed sorry to spoil the ending But at this point, he's saying, but I was zealous for God like you. He's trying to establish common ground with them. He's trying to say, you've actually got something good on your side here. You're zealous for God. You feel like if God is real, there's no point in being apathetic about it. You want to live for God with your whole life. And that's good. So do I. So he's trying to establish common ground with them. And he even then as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness in verse five, he's he's saying this happened and actually there's a bunch of the religious authorities who would be able to back up what I'm telling you, which is, yeah, I used to kill Christians. I used to arrest them. That's what I did. So if you're zealous for God and you're in Jerusalem and you speak Hebrew, I'm zealous for God and I I speak Hebrew and I used to live in Jerusalem too. So he's understanding his audience and building a bridge to help them see, look, we're actually trying to achieve the same kind of thing here. I've got a lot in common with you. You're putting me on trial, and I want to affirm some of the reasons why that's true, even though, obviously, I don't want you to kill me. I want to affirm that the reason, some of the reasons you want to do that are good. That's a very helpful approach to take, in general. Right, so if I'm, somebody's attacking me, it happens a fair bit in my line of work, and it would for many of us. Somebody's attacking you for what you believe and saying, I can't believe you're such a, whatever. Nowadays, it's often you're a bigot or whatever. So. Why do they believe that? What is it that they, what, what's good about what they're saying? And there often is a lot that's good. So you're saying, you want to protect marginalized people for whom Jesus has compassion. I say, that's really good. Right? You want to you wanna help, help people who've been excluded in the world find a home. So do I, praise God. That's really good. And what you, you do is you're establishing common ground because you understand why they think what they think. Because in fact, if you look carefully, the passion that you have, the person who's attacking me, the passion you have for protecting marginal, vulnerable people probably comes from Christianity ultimately anyway. That's probably where it comes from. I've got a lovely, a, a great little video from our friend Glenn Scrivener who lives just down the road. Um, and it's just a great little video showing this, so actually that when you... Well, it's a good apologetic video because when you are engaging in debate with people often the basis people have for objecting to Christianity oddly is kind of grounded in Christianity so we me just play this clip a minute
1: This is Sally. Sally is a rational person who could never make a leap of faith like Robbie up there. Look at Robbie, he's a faith head, floating around unsupported by anything. No, Sally simply goes by the evidence and the assured findings of science and reason. I mean, obviously Sally believes that all people are equal. That's just normal. And that society must protect its weakest members, obviously. She is certain that consent is essential to sex and that education, not coercion, is the path to enlightenment. She trusts science and what it can deliver the world. She is certain that all people should be free and she's concerned to reform the evils of yesterday as we progress to a brighter tomorrow. Oh, hey Robbie, what are you doing down here? That's right. Sally is a believer because none of these morals, assumptions or deep intuitions are the result of logic or scientific experiments. You can't prove equality, compassion, consent or any of these values that we live by every day. We believe in these values, we stake our lives on them. But they're not the kinds of things you can deduce logically or demonstrate scientifically. It turns out that Sally is a believer. She doesn't need to make a leap of faith, she's already living at a great height. Day by day, minute by minute, she assumes any number of values that cannot be proven with mathematical certainty. The solid ground she thinks she's standing on is not the ground of simple logic or reason. Actually, the values she lives by are founded on something else, something she might not have considered. And without that foundation, the values she lives by don't really make sense. You see, Sally lives her life based on the values of the Jesus revolution. She doesn't know that's where her values have come from. She's never been to church. She's never read the Bible for herself, but she's grown up in a culture built by Jesus and the values he has injected into the world. Sally has been assuming some deeply Christian truths all along, even if she never really examined them. But if she takes the time to look where she's standing She might just find that she's more of a person of faith than she thought. Sally's challenge is not to take a leap of faith. Through the Jesus revolution, history has already taken an almighty leap. Sally, along with the rest of us, are already in mid-air. What she needs is some ground beneath her feet, and it's Jesus alone who can provide it.
0: What he's doing in that video is just, is Apologetics 101. He's saying, I understand my audience. I understand what they believe. And now I'm going to try and build common ground to show you that the things you believe actually are very good, but they're in some ways grounded on Christian principles and thinking. It's a really helpful way of making that case. So the first thing you've got to do in making a defense of what you believe is actually understand your audience. And that can often take time and empathy and love and lots of discussion to understand. Who who am I talking to and what do they believe? Second thing you've got to do, which I won't spend too long on, is to tell your story. And I'm saying I won't spend too long on this because Paul tells his story three times in the book of Acts and I know it's going to be part of what Andy preaches on next week, so I won't go into it in such detail. But as we read the next section, let's just notice how much Paul focuses on Jesus and not just on himself when he's telling his story. Because often when we tell our story, it's all about us, understandably. But what Paul does, he's found a way of telling his story in a way that goes, no, not just what I did and how it changed me, but what Jesus did and what he said and what you should believe about him. This is what Paul continues, verse six. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you were persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light but didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that's appointed for you to do. And since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight, and I saw him, and he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you've seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I'd returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they won't accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So this is Paul telling his story, but in such a way that Jesus is central to it. So you've got to know your audience, then you've got to find a way of telling your story. Your story probably involves less killing of Christians and possibly less miraculous blindings and healings than that. I don't know. maybe. but you've got to find to say, okay, I want to tell the story of what God has done in my life in such a way that people can hear, just from most people won't shut you up for telling your own life story. They might, unless it's too long, right? But they, they probably will hear you out and say, this is what happened to me. And Paul does that, but he's done it in a way that Jesus is right at the center of it. So understand your audience, know your audience. Tell your story. The third one sounds quite strange in modern times. Know your rights. Ooh, this is a strange one to throw in, but this is what Paul does a lot in the book of Acts. It's a bit unusual. Read from verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices. So they've heard him out and then they said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So something he said has really got up their nose. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought my citizenship for a large sum of money. Paul said, well, I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul is not a fragile victim, right? He's not somebody who's he's not a snowflake. He's not continually saying, Oh, like the you know, again, the guys in Monty Python, help! I'm being repressed, I'm being repressed. That's not Paul's his way. You read his letters, he's regularly being beaten up and flogged, and five times he receives the thirty-nine lashes. So he's a robust man. I think we'd probably give Paul that much credit, right? But in this particular case, he plays the legal card because he knows that what they are about to do to him is not actually allowed by law. So Paul regularly being beaten up, nearly killed, tortured, we would now call it, but he's not stupid about it. He knows his rights. He is a Roman citizen, and in those days, if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be beaten without trial by the Roman courts. A mob might decide to throw things at you anyway, but you can't have legal processes which lead to you being effectively condemned without due process. And we still have that in our courts today, of course, in a different way. And he's prepared to play his get-out-of-jail-free card if he knows that he needs to. He doesn't play it all the time, He's not always going, oh no, you can't get me, oh no, I'm always being attacked, oh, it's so difficult being me, I'm such a vulnerable, fragile flower. That's not Paul's way. But at times he'll say, this is not allowed, right? it's illegal what you're doing, and I'm going to tell you that so that you back off. Of course, that's still true today. In the UK today, there are nine protected characteristics, and one of them is religion or belief. In other words, it's illegal to discriminate against you because of your religion or your belief. There's lots of other things it's not very nice to do, but there's nine things in in law in this country that you can't, under the Equality Act, that you can't discriminate against somebody because they're different from you on one of those nine things, and one of them is religion or belief, and that's great. That's something we should celebrate and say, what a wonderful piece of security to have. Many of our brothers and sisters globally don't have that protection, and many of them, as a result, suffer terrible things for their faith and are often killed. So it won't normally come to this, but there are times where Christians in our culture might need to say, actually, you're not allowed to discriminate against me for what I'm saying. That's not going to be in a conversation with a friend down the pub about what you believe and what God's done in your life, but there might be settings where it is needed. So if you find yourself arrested for preaching the gospel in public, as has happened a handful of times, or for praying silently outside an abortion centre, as happened a month or so ago, you, you might say, actually, I know what my rights are. I know that you're not allowed to do that Because there's a legal protection for me and it's worth knowing what they are. And Paul, actually, surprisingly to me in the ancient world, is happy to play that card. So it's a strange one that Paul, you'd think, that's a weird thing to mention in apologetics, but Paul goes there when he needs to. I've personally never needed to do that in my whole life, and I may never. But if you do, it's worth knowing what those rights are. So you know your audience, you tell your story, you know your rights... And when we look at the next section, we're going to find you also sometimes, it's almost the opposite of this, you have to admit your mistakes. So we're going to look at chapter 23, verses 1 to 5. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him, this by the way a very different Ananias, imagine you're getting the hang of all the Ananias in the, in the book of Acts now, aren't you? Martin mentioned it last week. But this is the high priest guy, not the disciple guy. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you setting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. This is an interesting little window into Paul's life, I think. Mike Tyson was preparing to fight Evander Holyfield. You may remember it. He He had a whole series of fights, one of which he bit Evander Holyfield's ear off. You may remember that story. If you don't know who Mike Tyson is, he's a scary man. Okay? And... You know, most amazing, I think, one of the most fascinating heavyweight boxers to ever watch. But Mike Tyson made this famous comment that people told him about Evander Holyfield's plan, preparing for the fight. They said, how do you feel about Holyfield's plan for the fight? And Mike Tyson said this comment that became very well-known, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. you heard that quote before? <laughs> everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. It's a good line. And, uh, you know, Mike Tyson, you know, spends the rest of the time trying to do that. Now, I imagine being punched in the mouth I don't think it's ever happened to me, except by my children, who are quite a lot smaller than me. Um, but I don't think that's. I imagine it's not the time at which you're going to make your best decisions. If someone's just hit you in the mouth, and you're on trial for your Christian faith, and someone orders that you get punched in the mouth, which is what happens here you can probably relate to, God's, to Paul's first reaction. God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Although I'm not sure in English. I mean, In Greek, it's kind of easier to pronounce. But i going to strike you wall. A whitewashed wall is a very difficult thing if you've just been punched in the face to say. So he explodes with this thing because he's saying you're actually a hypocrite because you're trying to use the law to judge me and you've just done something illegal. But imagine, so that's the kind of reaction we might well have. God, God's going to get you. But now listen to the second reaction. On learning that the man that he's cursed is the high priest, he instantly apologizes and says, "I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. Because it's written, you shouldn't speak evil of a ruler of the people." I think that is an astonishing thing to do, presumably within seconds of being punched in the mouth. I'm not sure how many of us in that situation would we'd, we'd, the first reaction we go, Ooh, but the second reaction would we go, "Yeah, do you know what? You shouldn't have done that, but I shouldn't have cursed you either." because actually the Bible says I shouldn't speak that way about the priest even if what he's done is completely illegal so here's the fourth thing we can learn from Paul's short course in Christian apologetics understand your audience, tell your story, know your rights admit your mistakes Paul does it within, this, within seconds I assume two wrongs don't make a right So of course, the high priest should not be ordering people to be punched without trying them properly. And certainly not for saying the phrase, I've lived before God with good conscience to this day. So the high priest is a scoundrel, he shouldn't be doing it. But Paul should not have cursed the high priest either and he instantly admits that. In my experience, people who love apologetics, people who love debates and back and forth and cut and thrust and answering questions and arguing and making public defenses of Christianity, brackets, people a bit like me, are not naturally the best people at admitting our mistakes. Like as a personality profile thing, right? People who like apologetics are often worse than the average person at admitting we're wrong. We like confronting, we don't like confessing. And Paul is a powerful model here because he's a very confrontational brave man who engages in debate for hours but he knows when to say, do you know what, I was wrong, I shouldn't have said that and back down. So we need to learn from Paul's example, particularly those of us who like apologetics, who like this kind of thing. Back and forth, public debates. Social media is a great setting for people to confront and yell at each other all the time. But one thing that's very hard to do is while you're publicly defending Christianity, you make a mistake and someone notices and then you have to find a way of admitting your mistake in public, in front of everybody, even when the other person's being horrible to you. It takes a lot of character to do that. Now Paul, praise God, he does. He has that. He is being publicly humiliated by someone who's in the wrong and he still is okay to admit that he's wrong too. And we need to learn from that. It's a challenge for us and probably for some of us that's the hardest bit of this message to hear. So I know I like all this stuff. Knowing my rights, you can't say that to me. Here's a clever argument. Rawr, I've watched Glenn Scrivener's video. And then go, oh yeah, do you know what? That was I was just wrong. I totally misread that. I didn't know that, Sorry. It's curiously powerful. People who believe in grace have nothing to fear from admitting our mistakes. Right? You go, if I believe in the grace of God that we've all just been singing about, I build my life upon your love. It's a firm foundation. I will not be shaken. You don't have to go, oh gosh, maybe this mistake I've made in debate, if it was found out, would cause no, no one to believe in Christianity. I don't have to worry about that, friends. I mean, say, no, God's bigger than that and God's grace is sufficient to cover my mistake, I'm really sorry. I just messed that up. We have to develop that kind of hearts and culture towards those who, with whom we are in discussion or disagreement. So, know your audience, tell your story, know your rights, admit your mistakes. Finally, most important, explain your hope. Verses 6, uh, verses six to 10. Explain your hope. Verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part of the the group putting him on trial, one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it's with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a discussion arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Because the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamour arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if your spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. In some ways, this is a slightly mischievous tactic because Paul knows that of the people putting him on trial, you've got the Sadducees who go, "No, no bodily resurrection, don't believe it. And the Pharisees go, "Of course we do. That's our hope." And so Paul just throws it in like a grenade. Going, "This will in a minute. This is going to go off, and they're all going to yell at each other." And that's exactly what happens. And they get so violent that the Tribune is fearful for Paul's safety. That he's literally going to be torn apart. So so Paul says, verse six, "It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial." but so in some ways he's being mischievous but he's also not being cynical at all because if you read Paul's preaching in Acts he's always going on about the resurrection so it's not like he's only doing it here to cause a problem he's continually talking about the resurrection to such a degree that as you may have seen when we did Acts 17 the Athenians in Athens when they hear Paul's preaching they think he believes in two gods Jesus and Anastasia which is the word for resurrection You think, oh, Jesus and resurrection. All this guy believed in two gods. Because he's so obsessed with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's always talking about his hope in the resurrection to such a degree that this is just the way he could, with integrity, say, oh, this is why I'm on trial. Because everywhere I go, I tell people the dead are going to be raised. Jesus is alive, and what's happened to him is one day going to happen to you, and it's going to happen to the whole world. And that's changed everything, and you now need to get in line with the new world that God is making. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to repent and turn to him, or are you going to continue to refuse him and turn your back on him? Christians believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. It's so central that it's in, the, it's in our creed, right? It's at the very heart of what we believe, and virtually no one else does. All the people out there driving past, almost none of them believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. They might believe in God, many do, many of you do, who don't believe in the, you believe in all sorts of things. Say, believe, I might believe in miracles, I might believe in the power of prayer. Many people in this town do, but Christians almost uniquely declare, I believe not only is Jesus alive and risen from the dead, but so will I be. I believe that death is going to be overthrown. I believe that the life is going to break out from death and the whole world is going to be made new. And that's ultimately, Paul says, why I'm on trial. That's, what, that's the problem you've got with me. It's not about this, that, or the other. It's actually about the resurrection of the dead. So you've got to centre your hope. And you've got to cut through the flannel that otherwise debates always become about. What do you think about sexuality? What do you think about dinosaurs? What do you think? Who, who cares what it is? He so, said, okay, we can talk about that. We need to have answers for that. I spend a lot of my time doing that. So do many of us. But ultimately, that's not really what we disagree about. What we disagree about is this. Is Jesus alive or not? And are you going to be raised or not? You've got to explain your hope. You say, the fact that Jesus came out of the tomb, in the end means that I'm going to put all of my chips on him. And if that means that sometimes it challenges what I believe about sexuality or dinosaurs or whatever, I don't know, whatever it is for you, you I'm going to put a pin in that. And I say, but if Jesus is alive, I need to read reality through that lens and understand that's the central fact. And if Jesus is still dead, then in the end, nothing else matters. But if Jesus is alive, then in the end, nothing else matters. And so what Paul does is to explain his hope. He says, this is the reason I'm on trial. At root, this is a belief about something that actually happened in this world, that on the third day, the tomb was empty, people saw Jesus. Paul saying, I've seen Jesus, and I want you to believe in him, because in the end, everything is going to be raised, and you're going to have to choose, do I follow the risen one, or do I continue to reject him? So we're going to finish today by recentering our lives on Jesus, the living hope, the gospel, the, the risen Christ. Like in the end, all the other stuff's good to do. But if people don't know, why have you got a hope? Where's that come from? What is it that you seem to believe about the future that means you're always thinking that the world's going to be better in the future than it is now? Why is that? Why do you believe Jesus is so special? Why do, what? You've got to put your hope in the centre of it. And ultimately, the hope comes from the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the knowledge that when we've died, we will be raised with him as well. So we're going to have a time of sharing communion. What we're going to do, the band are going to come out and, and lead us, um, and we're going to sing. We're going to kind of go and get the, the elements, if you like, the, the bread and the juice, and then we're going to come back to our seat, and we're all going to share it together, um, which I know is sometimes how, we, how we've done things recently, and I think it's a great way of doing it. So we're going to do, I'll lead us through that in a moment. So if you Take, it'll take five minutes to go and get it for everybody. Do, can I just ask, if, you're a, if, you're, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, come to the table. If you haven't or you're not sure, just stay in your seat and just listen to the song because this is actually for people who are like, committed, people who say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the, oh, that's me, I believe Jesus is alive. If you're not sure, if you're saying, oh, my life is just nowhere near that at the moment, I don't, I'm not living as if any of that's true, sit this one out because this is, just, this is a meal that Christians partake and declare our union with Jesus. But I know for most of us it is, and it's great news. So let's stand to our feet, we'll sing this song, let's go and get the elements, and in a few minutes we'll come back and share them together.